All right. Welcome to You Talking with Greg on the integral stage. Um, I'm back with one of my favorite interlocutors, uh, Layman Pascal. Uh, we did the DSM round, sort of You Talking DSM. Uh, and this is a second part of that where we're talking higher pathology. And who better to do that with? <laughs> poster boy for higher pathology that's right man when i look up the dictionary of higher pathology i see us clowns right so that's perfect <laughs> yeah we're back i'm layman pascal from the integral stage i'm always thrilled to be with my uh my favorite bride tackler <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. yeah, now, that's what i'm now gonna be right i used to be known for new, you talk talking about higher pathology i do have that uh, aspect of my psyche we can dive into at some point <laughs> All right, here's my um, introductory overview. All right. Last time we talked about how your unified field theory of psychology approaches a number of the major types of pathologies and imbalances that form the, let's say, the alphabet of both colloquial and classic professional psychology. Yep. And although we were making a playful tour of that landscape, we were also trying to think, what does a Utah DSM kind of look like? Yep. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, if the practical part of psychology is therapeutic diagnosis and treatment of so-called mental illnesses, then how do we begin to think about all that in an integrative, recontextualized way with a set of core diagnostics, building on previous work, folding in contemporary research, operating across the schools of psychology, but with a consistent, coherent definition of what pathology essentially is? Fuck yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we did that by using um, particular ideas about particular types of psychological maladies as leaping off points to explore the nature of pathology and a kind of cross-pollinated multi-school response that a Utah metapsychology might bring to bear on that. Right. Uh, and that's a profound philosophical problem. And it's also a deeply pragmatic and compassionate circumstance because the ultimate standard here is whether human suffering is really being reduced and human yep. capacity and dignity are really being increased. 100%. But what are the limits on making evaluations like that? Because like, most psychology is trying to bring people up to a normal level of well-being and function. Right. However flexible or neurodiverse, we might now decide that normal is. Yep. Uh, does that constitute the fundamental frame for therapeutic work or are there important ways of thinking at least speculatively about the possibility of more profound human psychological totally. capacity which could make normal adult waking state functioning in our civilization seem like a pathology or at least a woeful <laughs> limitation by comparison All right exactly so i would i would like to steer us beyond the edges of the game board today and consider various aspects of uh supranormal psychology mm -hmm. Amen. Uh, what pathology might mean in an expanded sense. And I guess I'm, I'll probably prompt us by asking multiple versions of the same few basic questions that are in my right. mind to see if we can get some underlying principles. How's that sound? That sounds beautiful. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I have a long history of looking at the arc of a number of sort of leading edge life thinkers, say Nietzsche, for example, right? Uh, who often sometimes define himself as the first psychologist and sort of like, yeah. What, you know, and, and in terms of health, in terms of functioning, in terms of pathology, in terms of the optimal states of being, in terms of fucked upness, you know, how do we, what's the, what's the frame we bring to bear on, say, creative, mad geniuses, transcendent, weird states, um, all sorts of different kinds of uh, frames of reference. I don't have a huge number of answers, but I got a hell of a lot of questions. I got some musings 
that I very much look forward to sharing with you in this space. So, well, I got a place I thought I was going to start this, but now I want to know what your take on Nietzsche is, because this is clearly a guy who um, was familiar enough with peak experience to put it at the heart of his philosophical message. It's clearly a guy who was extraordinary when it comes to cognition and aesthetics and mm -hmm. blend them in a way that becomes something like spirituality. Also a guy who seems to have had deep interpersonal problems with people, but it's really hard to gauge that properly because maybe he's just a very sensitive guy in a, in a, a mode and moment of civilization where he can't really express his vulnerability properly, or maybe he's got some developmental problems in that regard. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you put him in context? What's your sense of this guy? Uh, all of that. I mean, uh, and what, I mean, I certainly see him having an unbelievable set of emotional and cognitive potentials, which he then obviously realizes, but it grows him into a post-conventional state of being that then launches him into basically an isolated way of being in the world. I mean, he, he gets, and, um, and there are, you know, I'll confess, I experienced some parallels in that and what happened to you talk to me in terms of like, oh, where am I in space and how do I relate to other people? Um, I see Nietzsche as just cutting the edges of our thinking in a wide variety of different domains. I see him as first postmodern philosopher. I'm not unique in that. Um, I then see him seeking to find in the truth of that, you know, the the how do we achieve beauty? How do we, you know, achieve that? And at the same time, the inevitable craziness and alienation. And indeed, he's obviously then completely, for whatever, whether that's part of the journey or whether it's his constitution, he actually becomes, of course, genuinely crazy. Uh, as far as, you know, anything that I've seen, he decompensates to the point where, yeah, no, that thing burned out and broke down <laughs> um, for whatever reason. Uh, but then to think about him, you know, traipsing around the Alps and, uh, or other domains and thinking about, uh, who he was and what he is about. To me, when I think higher pathology, that's just where I went. It's like, oh, there's an interesting character uh, to wonder about. Uh, there certainly be others, but uh, I have a particular fascination uh, in, in wondering about, well, you know, do we look up? In many ways, I look up enormously to Nietzsche, but it's also to say he's pretty fucked up, you know? And how do we, what is that? And I, I very much struggle with how do you, manage the creative mad genius, the unbelievable exploration, this post-conventional thought, and then this alienation and weirdness and deviation, and then um, this inability to then feed back. And then what's, what's good and bad about all of that? And I think those should be open and dynamic questions. I certainly don't have recipe answers for those things, but I think we should have frames that afford us uh, the capacity to ask those rich and deep questions. Yeah, I want, I want to come back to that as well, because there's a problem around a lot of uh, the great spiritual teachers, which is similar, which is uh, if there's something problematic in their psychology, is it because of what Ken Wilber would call uneven developments? Or is there something like this is the, the cool legendary version of Nietzsche, like maybe he just went too far. Yeah. Maybe it was his very brilliance that took him into the abyss. Maybe we should all be cautious about going that far. Mm -hmm. Those are two very different takes. They're very intriguing. Totally. But I guess I would like to, we come back to where I thought okay. I was going to start this. All right, please. Which is, uh, I want to touch in on the notion of transformation, because I think, mm. um, you know, pathology in a supernormal sense has at least two different issues coupled with it. One is a set of problems arising from obstructing some kind of transformation mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. going through some kind of transformation. Mm -hmm. And the other is, like I mentioned earlier, 
the way that transformation might retroactively reinterpret normal as pathological. Totally. So I want to lean into the first one a little bit up front okay. because you and John and Zach have been doing some great work in exploring mm -hmm. that, assembling the different meanings of transformation and mm -hmm. you know, groping for a language that might hold them all. Right. And it's a it's a big topic. Like if anybody <laughs> hasn't been listening to that series, you know, transformation is I don't know, like turning a human infant ape into a functional moral adult citizen. That's incredible. You know, our higher quasi-neo-Piagetian stages, even if we think of them as mostly tax, tan, mm -hmm. context-dependent, transformative, um, deeper maturational appreciation of the heartbreaking loss and limitation of mortal being, totally. uh, access to states of consciousness, including a privileged set of states that we might need ultimate language to describe uh, uh -huh. um and also like whatever real possibilities there might be for higher capacities that we might describe as sorceress or legendary or something like totally. that we don't really know the full range right so that's all the uh uh the expansive panoply of transformationalism <laughs> i think is what my hands are trying to describe. Yeah, right. we, did a, we did a lot of hand waving in that series so that's very apropos <laughs> And so here's the question that all brings me before, which is um, when we're looking at all that stuff, Mr. Utah, I'd love to hear your basic feeling about whether um, something new is being added or a more complete experience of normal humanity is being recovered, right? Is this a, mm -hmm. are these states, are higher conditions, are transformations, creative inventions or mutations, or is it more like, uh, realizing the dashboard we came with has a lot of customizable functions we just haven't been using. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to answer that basically as a dialectic between them in an um, emanating emergent kind of notion. Uh, and and so at a, when I I don't I haven't done uh, um, uh, as I confessed to da Zach Stein uh, the Utox underdeveloped in development. Okay, although if you look at the behind me, there's the character wheel of development. And really, I argue you can take um, Wilbur's integral psychology, okay? Around that character wheel, there's things like identity, values, virtues, morals, abilities, um, pathologies, and trait uh, dispositions. Uh, and you can think about it, it rotates around the wheel, uh, the character adaptation system is the axle, and then it rotates around that. And you can think about all the lines of development that uh, Wilbur identifies in integral psychology as growing off of that wheel, okay? And I bring that up because this whole issue of development and transformation are very closely interrelated, all right? Um, I haven't done an enormous amount. I mean, I sort of like like the fact that Wilbur sort of took that. I'm underdeveloped. We can bridge across that. He's, that's a gap. That's an integral Utah um, uh, bridge that where I can reach out and say, hey, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, I take a sort of a general four-stage view, okay, of sort of like the human consciousness starting at the animal level, animal sentience kind of deal, primate relationship attachment. So you get animal, then you get early childhood, pre-conventional childhood, then you get conventional adults, okay? And then you're going to have a post-conventional potential sage, crazy madman, transcendent seer, seeker kind of dimension, okay? So that's animal, child, adult, and now above. Where, they, where the system breaks, the individual breaks out of convention, okay, and then sees a shift, either emotionally, morally, aesthetically, et cetera, that they get outside of convention are essentially looking down on because of the, you know, the nature of hierarchical complexible reflection. Uh, they step outside the phase, they go through it, 
and then afford some novel capacity, perspectival capacity, justificatory capacity, et cetera, okay? Um, and then now you're in this particular kind of space um, whereby the opportunities for growth on the one hand and novelty and exploration and creative generativity that then feed back onto the system are great. And at the same time, you get this distancing from what the conventional stabilities are, okay? And you're gonna get very interesting questions. I have these different questions about, are these also unique individuals, okay, that have a particular unique constellation where we look at a Nietzsche in a particular world and basically be like, oh, we can really learn a lot how to live through him. Or basically like, no, there are a couple of crazy fuckers out there like Nietzsche. And we do, we do not want the rest of people following in those footsteps, okay? Like, you know, trying to elevate everybody into the sage is not really what I think is really the structure, okay? So for me, the basic issue is in relationship to this from a Utah kind of perspective is you get a post-conventional justificatory being level, which actually I can even put at sort of a fifth joint point kind of way in terms of the cosmic coordinates of it. And, you know, that's a metaphorical, but, but you can get a gist of it. Um, and then you're really on the bleeding edge of exploration in whatever domain or multiplicity domains of somebody is going to be in. Um, and for me, the question then is, well, can you cover, you know, ground that affords, you know, some orientation towards wisdom in this new creative facility that breeds back into the system and does move the system toward that conscious evolution, toward that greater dimension of adaptive hierarchical complexity. That's the kind of, that's the beauty. And also realize that that's a lot of where the chaos is and a lot of uncertainty. And so you're gonna have an order chaos, hierarchical look down, confusing dialectic, I think in almost every case. Yeah, and that's part of the utility of the conversation we're having right now. Like, how do those uh, freakish characters, uh, positively or negatively freakish, inform the rest of the system, right? Given that we're probably not going to get everybody to those levels as something mm -hmm. normal, uh, we nonetheless have to be able to restructure our system and understand our psychology in light of what they've done, hopefully move everybody somewhat forward, and the uh, basic step that seems to be involved there is the, in the structures of the system we have, we have to open space to accommodate those figures better so that we have some kind of intermediary discourse whereby we could start to take what we like from them and also re-appreciate them in certain ways. Totally. Uh, we talked about like centaur level, I think you and Bruce, and then we circle back into that, like, oh, that would be really, really interesting for you know, an aspirational structure for individuals, adults to be moving towards in our educational system. Those are the kinds of reflective questions and framings that I do think is, is very useful. Um, I, I would say that the, the work that UTALK does, at least has done up to this point, is in grounding, you know, I keep going to ground the ontology of what the hell we're talking about here in the, in the animal, mental, human person, and then potentially beyond and be grounded in some notions of virtue ethics and wisdom, and then get specific, you know, that, that, that we have failed to generate a coherent, given a, we've not generated a coherent metaphysical descriptive system that affords us clarity about the ontology, the mental, into the human person sitting and situated in a society. And what the basic structure of that is, um, that you then you talk and says, oh yeah, here's your conventional human structure, okay? We're a system that seeks relational value, we seek connection with others, we're going to have an egoic justifier. It's going to navigate that self, experiential self justifier in a persona. That's going to be a structure. The coherent integration of that for general people at the 
conventional adult level is what is central. We're also going to want to push and think about growth, adaptive growth to integrate across a number of different potentials will always be on the growth edge. So that's the real um, architecture of Utah is just a, hey, we, we haven't been fucking clear on this ground, okay? And we can get clear on the ground. Getting clear on the ground raises all these questions of the, that I'm now we're just embarking in. Um, but I certainly haven't spent enormous amount of time delineating this rich, um, chaotic, beautiful territory, as it were. Uh, I'm thinking now that Nietzsche is a really interesting place to have started this discussion because his idea of, you know, the overman or the ultra human, whatever he's talking about, uh, some people take that in the direction of transhumanism, right? And mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not really equipped to say much about that. And maybe nobody is because what is the psychology of a person who can live for 500 years or whose mind is transferred into a computer or who grows up interfacing neurologically with the internet or yep. whatever, or they're chemically, genetically modified. There's something not quite a human. I don't really know where that goes as higher psychology. I'm a little more equipped to talk about what spirituality and existential authentic might have in common. Totally. So I'm going to lean into that. Uh, I make this argument that spirituality is a collection of practices where multiple subjective subsystems are integrated in diverse ways to produce an overflow of meaningful coherence that we can then enter into relationship through different interpretive and perceptual lenses. 100%, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the absolute simplest, uh, most basic ways that shows up is people just telling themselves a culturally reinforced story about mm -hmm. something that goes beyond their normal operations of mind and reaction. Yep, absolutely. Um, so that, that's a very, that kind of spirituality is very broad, very flexible. Mm -hmm. And if we mm -hmm. wanted to do something like bring spirituality into mental health, yep. particularly at the institutional and procedural level, then obviously we do have to accommodate a great diversity of forms, but um, we also want to apply some kind of validation criteria, right? We don't just want to say that everything anybody calls spiritual is equally valid or equally good for them. Absolutely not. I'm curious, you know, from your experience with mm -hmm. clients and your experience mm -hmm. with research, um, what, what's, what does all that suggest to you about when spirituality is a problem rather than a solution? Like sure. Is it, is it just where spiritual bypassing negates healthy function and challenge or when are higher beliefs and higher practices negative rather than positive? Yeah, no, that's great. And certainly I'm glad you brought up spiritual bypassing, which is actually getting grounding in genuinely empirically grounded um, claims and, and, and notions. I'm not an expert in that, but it certainly is the case. Um, so, I mean, for me, and speaking to sort of some of the existential issues, uh, for me, the basic perspective that I said, think about is sort of the vertical stack, horizontal stack, and developmental stack, meaning across time. So what do I mean by that is, hey, I want a wisdom integration stack. I want to be thinking about what's the material world, what's the living organismic world, what's the mental animal world, what's the justificatory world, and then what's the direction toward value, and is there a coherent, integrated, flexible, adaptive structure in relation, okay? Um, and what I would say is a pretty clear and consistent framing for what I would call sort of the trans-egoic spiritual orientation would be the capacity to say, okay, I understand that this is my perspective on the world. I understand that I have my egoic justifier that cares about, hey, is Greg liked and respected and who betrayed me and all, all of that. And that actually is one particular narrative in one particular context. And actually, there's the human individual, but there's also humanity, and this is a Confucian notion that expands over a wide variety of different possible uh, domains. What I would certainly be looking for is sort of the coherent capacity to see the generalized, extended trans framings 
that individuals are integrated around, operate through, uh, and then manifest. And almost by definition, if they follow that, if their soul, I would often talk about the soul being oriented to the spirit, to the transcendent, and they're genuinely are plugged into some particular kind of thing, through an integrated wisdom stack, okay? And this is where you get the spiritual bypassing. The spiritual bypassing <clears throat> basically is, oh, I feel empty, but I want to be whole. Those guys up there are, oh, they're above. So then I just create a little thing and I'm like, I'm going to be like them. I'm going to go perform like them in a particular way. And yet actually it's a performative recipe that is actually designed to compensate and justify that I'm above when in fact it's, it's a defensive rationalization rather than an authentic articulation. That's what you, from a clinical dynamic perspective, you can see people that are basically rationalizing rather than engaged in authentic communication through the justification system where it's essentially it's a propositional network of openness a transcendence in relationship to that that's why i would talk about a coherent wisdom stack um as opposed to this sort of like oh i'm going to jump up here and then do this because that means i'm so enlightened right um so that one way to think about that is sort of like yeah how do we know and what would be the indicators of a fundamentally ontologically coherently integrated structure that would afford clarity that that thing is part of the real that's a fundamentally engaged use some of john's term in a transjective gripping you know of the self other agent arena relationship uh all the way through and then that grounds it in something that we could then be have confidence in that this if we if we generalize this uh then we will be moved towards an authentic good uh one of the things that comes up for me when i think about that you know i think uh you know, John's kind of concerned about when does religion afford what he calls imaginal augmentation, uh -huh. and, and when is there this risk that something that seems like that is actually taking you down a, uh, a solipsistic simulation enclosure into a, a derealizing tunnel yep. of some kind. And uh, I'm curious, because I'm coming at this often from the adjacency perspective, is um the the space between you and the experience how relevant hmm. is that because it seems like in, in order to be healthy with anything you're you're predicting and you're receiving and you're engaged but you're not totally identified with it you're bringing some of yourself to it you're like oh this is how i had that experience but it's not just uh an absolute dogmatic uh, you know homogenous assumption yep and and i'm wondering you know, whether and how well we can tell by, say, doing a therapeutic conversation with someone, somebody comes uh -huh. into the office and they're telling you about the experience, um, you know, what would we look for in order to tell that this person is an actively engaged human being yep. with these things they're talking about, as opposed to having become fixated in, in some subhuman variant of that? Totally. Um, so here's, here's one way that... Uh, um, I, I've recently then tried to frame like with this eye quad glasses, okay? Uh, and when you look inside subjectively, um, I'm really arguing that you can really see two different streams of your conscious awareness, okay? Um, one which I call sort of the ESP stream, and that's ego, not ESP. <laughs> it's ego experiential self persona. That's the person grabbing a hold, making meaning, and this is what's relevant to me using some of the what we did in the elusive eye. It's like, oh, we do carry around a self-relevant extension, we get a justifier, and then we manage a persona. And these are all the everyday things that actually freaking matter as we try to become what we can become in our everyday lives, okay? 
And then you get the pure awareness stream, okay, sort of the essence, and then and many individuals or many um, wisdom traditions would really try to, through meditation and whatever, to, you know, when you talk about the dissolution of the self, I would argue that a lot of that is then identification with a pure awareness stream. And then that becomes being itself, okay, and then you become enlightened as you be able to ground yourself in simply that level of awareness. Um, I, I heard a, a sage talk about this very similar in I am versus am is, okay? Now, uh, for me, again, sort of in, in a Buddhist spiritual bypassing and genuinely a potentially problematic, um, maybe it's my Western roots, um, but I believe you really have to toggle, and I think many people would say, we toggle between these two domains. And that's basic. Think of them as adjacent to each other, feeding back in relationship to each other, informing each other. Um, and really, there's a being and becoming and a doing, but being becoming dialectic here in relationship to this. Um, we need the ESP line and we need a pure awareness line. Um, individuals that would be looking to then grab a hold of now I'm awake, now I'm the one, any of that. From a psychodynamic perspective, you're going to be very, I would at least, or you talk would you know, just borrow from basic, what's the, what's the underlying needs that the ESP system is driving? And what is the driving explanations in relation? And what's the difference between a character defense justification, which basically you can say, oh, like, for example, is a simple one. But if any, if I ever hear somebody says, ah, I don't need other people. Okay. Um, they're thinking they're expressing that they have high autonomy needs. Okay. But if you listen to it, when you, what you really get in is they're what's called counter-dependent, okay? What that means is they've been wounded by their needs, okay? And then through those wounds, they said, fuck it, I don't need that shit anymore, precisely because if I did, I would be really wounded, all right? And, then I, and so now they feel proud that they've accomplished something, but actually the underlying motive structure of justification is avoidance. It's like, I've been injured, I'm compensating, and now I'm actually proud that I'm compensating and actually, that's going to lead to static in the stack. But because now the ego is like, oh, well, I'm so, I'm now really awake. Okay. I don't need this shit anymore. It's like, well, no, part of you did and does, by the way. Okay. And that's then now what you're doing is creating static in the stack. The part of the heart that actually needs this is now shut into the closet. And now I'm going to double down on a justification that makes me feel better when it's obviously a rationalization that hides the underlying need. Okay. So for me, the UTOC structure affords a lot of specificity and dynamic analysis of the kinds of justification systems that would be indicative of a really good coherent toggling between pure awareness and self and the expansion of a transegoic frame versus something that would basically be like, no, the spiritual bypassing, rationalizing narcissism, and, and all sorts of indications because the ESP stack actually is not psychodynamically healthy. There's an enormous amount of defense. And now it jumps over into transcendent spiritual things to try to say, hey, I don't need this anymore. When actually you want to, you have to go through it and be integrated with it rather than, oh, I'm going to block it off and then find myself somewhere else. And actually you end up being trapped by it almost certainly. The relational thing I think is key. Like my kind of rule of thumb uh, for when it's healthy or not healthy is if you're conceiving liberation as an alternative to being in relationships, uh, that's the wrong path. <laughs> that's the counterdependent justice. Right, that's exactly right, what it right. is. Yes. When, you, when you were saying that, I, I had this flash in my head of uh, what does oppositional defiance disorder look like if what you're defying is reality itself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. I, I'll put that aside for a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, let's see. I want to go to a, a interesting philosophical place that we've mentioned a few times here, which is, or let me back up a bit. If we accept some version of a story in which regimes of function are evolving and emerging in a kind of layered manner, then we subsequently can tell ourselves a story where we, um, where pathology is a regress, a falling back to a, a simpler, less adapted, less significant mode of operation. And those regressive moves are then inherently relative to the layer of function that we wish to attain and protect. I can go with like that. My personal example is always that there's no problem with minerals, but if you're trying to turn me into minerals, that's a murder. <laughs> <laughs> right, returning me to oh, a completely right, that would regress. Right. <laughs> I thought I was just a bunch of bag of chemicals to begin with, Layman. No, you don't. Maybe I'm more than that. <laughs> At least. <laughs> uh, so uh, if we're going to entertain a scenario which falling back to a previous, potentially normal, healthy attractor state is mm -hmm. the relative definition of pathology, then we're open to the possibility that a, a future functional state could legitimately relatively describe our normal as a pathological regression. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm curious how you think about relativity in terms of attributing pathology. Like, yep. does it need to be defined relativistically or does relativistic definition somehow undermine the utility of having a definition of pathology? Like, it seems like there could be advantages either way. Yeah, um, so definitely. I think that the um, there are a number of different issues. We have to decide what context that we're actually in. And one of the things that we're, so are we in a basic descriptive context? Okay, so for example, let's do it. We can be a descriptive. Let's just imagine that there is a hierarchical level of functioning, okay? And then when you're moving up, you're moving more and more optimal. And then when you're moving back, it's you're heading towards pathology. Um, but we're, if we're just in the descriptive domain, we're going to just use those are those are non-moral value implications. We're not prescribing what they are. We're just using the term. Oh, that's more pathological. Okay, um, and what I mean by that is the reason I want to be very careful about that is that in the world of say healthcare, okay, the word pathology isn't just a descriptive identifier. All right, the word pathology then carries uh, prescriptions in relationship to oh, if this person's pathological. All right. Now that brings to bear a whole bunch of institutional implications about how we ought to be in relation. Like, do they get treatment as a diagnosis and then do they get care? And that's a whole nother set. So if we say, I would say, um, yeah, I would say you can, in the descriptive level, you can create this continuum. Imagine, oh, this is more and more optimal than any regresses. That's a little bit more pathological. Okay. And then if we were, say, a regression, but we wouldn't want to call that person pathological when we shift into the prescriptive, because we're still talking about somebody who's very, very healthy if they're up here. And we wouldn't want to utilize that label and hijack all of the implications of like, okay, we're now necessarily going to, what are the implications for treating? What are the implications for healthcare? What are the, all of that? So that, that would be one thing I would want to do is I would want to make sure we're, what sphere of justification are we into? Basic description or actually pulling now, the problem with these language issues is that they barely, they feed back on each other. And it's not nearly as in the real world. That's why I emphasize justifications. The real world, this, this is really complicated. <laughs> so that's one thing I would make. Um, but I, I, so the bottom line is, I think that there are uh, certainly hierarchical adaptive angles that you could say move towards uh, um, optimal functioning, that you would regress back down in relationship to that. You'd bring to bear this regression in terms of, well, is this, do we understand this regression as a reorganization period where you have to drop down to then re, that reconsolidate? You have to drop off of the peak to go down to the valley to come back to a higher peak. 
Or is it because certain things were made, there was a certain level of adapt functioning that then created a vicious cycle cascade of maladaption. Now the system drops and now it's reciprocally narrowed in a far from optimal state. And that is a drift from optimal potentiality down into a more pathological state on a descriptive continuum. So at that level, I think that's a very reasonable characterization. I would simply, the issue of pathology becomes all sorts of, like the whole DSM starts with the idea that we have to divide the world into clinically significant problems. That becomes what pathology is because it's a manual that decides who gets labeled for treatment, reimbursement, and all the other justifications that come along with that pragmatically. So I don't know if I answered your question because I got on no, a sidetrack with that. A, but. A, I mean, the, the distinction within this descriptive use of pathology and the mobilization of social resources and relationships that cluster around the notion of pathology. Those, it's very important, I think, to tease those apart in any framing of this. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was how we've got this contemporary diagnosis, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And of course, it's long been contested because it's a very helpful diagnosis in some cases, but many people complain it. Uh, promotes the unnecessary medication of ordinary children. It, mm -hmm. it creates a lack of emphasis on practices that build concentration and self-control. And it, it can give a free pass to parents and educational systems who are failing in their pertinence and engagement and authority by suggesting the problem is always the person who doesn't want to listen, even 100%. if the speaker is terrible. Yep. Um, but part of what makes ADHD inherently ambiguous in many respects is that every human being basically feels they're not as focused as they would like to be. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and you know, obviously today we're better at, we have more command of what the neurochemical modulators and the ultradian rhythms and the biological activities that might help a person get more focus and things like that. It seems like we might be moving neuropsychologically toward a new kind of uh, a yoga or something like that. Mm. A, new, a new lore of the practical application of the ability to increase the power of attention. And uh -huh. this is an old discourse on increasing sure. attention, right? In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the mm. highest grades of yoga practice, Dharana Dhyana Samadhi, focus, mm. flow, and the merger of attention with objects of perception, mm. are considered to be these increasing powers of attentional capacity, right? Uh -huh. And whether you really get transcendent powers, you certainly get fascinating experiences sure. and a sense of being empowered over your attention habits rather than yep. being subjected to them. 100%. So I guess if there's a question here or a prompt, it's like, mm -hmm. um, what's the opposite of ADHD? How should we mm -hmm. think about that? And, you know, how does, I mean, what would it mean to take the saint and the genius as the standard of normal attentional health? What would that mm. mean in psychology to set a higher bar for what the capacity to focus means than we normally do? Yeah. All right, so that's a lot of a lot of things in there. Uh, I I believe uh, this gets we do need to have serious, good conversations about optimal functioning, whether we're talking about attention, emotional regulation, etc. <clears throat> I believe <clears throat> what we are completely lacking. So the DSM diagnostic. I may have mentioned this last time, but if I didn't, I'll just repeat it or whatever. If I did, um, so the DSM doesn't have any articulation of optimal functioning. Okay, we and so we need like yes, when we when uh, Richie Davidson at Wisconsin is a very big researcher in affective neuroscience, brings the monks in uh, and does brain scans and then talks about the way they cultivate positive affect and are able to attend to the structures in their systems, attend to the world in a particular way. He's doing us a very good service to articulate, hey, there's a particular capacity here 
a supernormal capacity, a sage-like capacity in this way. We can learn a hell of a lot from them. Uh, and much of what they can just say is, yes, that is, um, uh, that is optimal sage-like. And, and we don't want to create that as normative, okay? But there's no reason why we can't say, oh, my God, that is a, that's a higher, that's the sage or above post-conventional ways of being. Um, to have that, in fact, there's a movement in personality theory uh, and personality assessment. They almost got into the DSM uh, that was creating a level functioning, uh, zero, psychotic, disorganized, completely dysfunctional, uh, borderline, which is basically, you know, self-other, broken, et cetera, <clears throat> neurotic, which is defensive, but reality testing, okay, but struggling with anxiety and depression, guilt, et cetera, healthy neurotic, okay, and then ultimately healthy resilient, all right? And they were able to then speak to identity issues, emotion issues, self-other related issues. How do you handle conflict? Where do you go under stress? So I, and this way I do this framing is like, where are you normally? What happens in stress? How much do you regress under stress? A healthy, robust capacity to drop into a situation. Um, me, I'd say, okay, are, are you able to maintain calm on under a lot of duress? Think short and long-term with effectiveness across, in, in, at least in adaptive space. So that's a long-winded answer to say, I totally believe we need to think about the dimensionality, stack dimensionality of mental illness uh, and disorder up to optimal mental health and functioning across a wide variety of different domains, attention being one of them. Um, so and then I can come back to attention in particular, but why don't I just pause there because I sort of went on a bit of a, a yeah, detour. Yeah, I, I want to come back to attention, but what you're saying brings up for me this, uh, it, it's really ambiguous to me about whether we should set a higher normativity or not, right? Mm -hmm. Because the argument for not doing that is, well, it's not going to apply to most people. And so what we need to do is extend care and health to the majority of people. And that's going to be focusing on what, what, you know, the, the most general minimal standard of well-being that we can yep. try to get to them. On the other hand, if you're looking at the system and going, it's essentially suffering from what we consider to be the normal condition of human beings. Mm -hmm. We need to massively favor the uh, cultivation of wisdom and human development in some way that maybe we do need to set a higher definition of normal and you know maybe even treat the education system as a form of therapy that's redressing the fact that we are normal human beings right so and you know that's that's it's a, that's a very very tricky thing absolutely so what i what i would say is we can do a lot better in understanding just the descriptive nature of optimal functionality of the psyche okay so we can basically say with a lot more confidence like I always talk about, you know, okay, there's a coherent integrated stack across the animal body, the social primate, the justifying egoic head, and the spirit, all right? Um, and these systems operate on different sort of space-time reactivity structures, okay? Then um, how do they communicate to each other, all right? I would argue that we, I should have gone through school, okay? And when I said, oh, I wanted to get into psychology and psychopathology, it should have been pretty clear that I should have had a map more or less like this animal, primate, person, context, uh, coherent integration. When we look at the body system, we, you know, my, our fellows in doing physiology and anatomy are like, yeah, so this is what the immune system's doing. This is what the circulatory system's doing. These are how these systems feed back. When you get a nasty, vicious cycle between systems, the systems collapse in a particular way. So this is when it's coherent, integrated, differentiated, and this is when it looks pretty damn optimal. We don't have anything in psychology that affords us clarity. I've, there are a lot of all these different models, but there's no consolidated way to say, hey, actually, here's pretty good. Op this is what we expect for this kind of optimal functioning. That's, that, is, that is 
could be, a, now that's not to say, and this is where it gets super tricky while you're raising an absolutely key point. It's like, oh, well, we're going to get optimal and then we'll make that normative. And then anything deviation from that is pathological. That's what we can't do. And how to navigate that is very tricky. But where we are developmentally, all I'm saying is, man, we should have much clearer about this stack of optimal functioning. All right, let's come back to attention because okay. um, as I understand ADHD, it's not a complete dysfunction in the attention mechanism because they can focus very well under terror and fascination conditions, okay. right? So what we're trying to um, therapeutically correct there, mm -hmm. we're trying to uh, <clears throat> amplify their capacity to intentionally deploy attention. And so we're trying to move them from this dysfunction to this function, but what's the same move in the other direction? What, what does a higher one look like? What's the anti-ADHD? What would, what would higher attention look like from a psychological perspective? Absolutely. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, so Keith Connor uh, is uh, just, a, he founded really the ADHD back in the 1970s. I think he passed away not too long ago. Um, and uh, by the way, as he died, you know, in all the attention that ADHD has brought to bear, you would wonder, oh, you know, I'm really glad we were. He was like, this has been a catastrophe of national proportion, okay? Uh, and what he, what he meant by that was that he was really interested in about half a percent of the population that would have my, what would be then, their behavior would be so difficult to regulate under even the basic and normative structures of what any kind of regular, you know, just sit in a chair for five minutes, you know, that's all you need to do is sit in a chair for five, no, they can't fucking do that. So they're just completely bouncing off the walls of half a percent of the population and that any basic socialization and normal constructions is a really, really impaired. That's who he initially works with in the 1970s. Um, so three standard deviations out, all right? And then what happens is, is that they, as they you know, do all sorts of different things and most obviously develop stimulants, okay? And the structure of classroom activity basically is less and less conducive, okay? to individuals who have, and I'll talk about the shift between the task focus and the default mode network. But basically, you got parallel processes that are operating all the time. Kids that jump around between their parallel processing, i.e. more ADHD-like, are unbelievably um, likely to have a lot of difficulty in the current modern classroom, okay? So then we create a particular context in a classroom that is very, very um, alien uh, and completely mismatched with a particular kind of cognitive style that would, for lots of reasons, have many different advantages. And then it's a normal distribution of deviation. And now we're basically taking people that are just one standard deviation away from the norm, calling them problematic and medicating them. So that's the that's from a critic perspective. We've created a context that alienates the structure. So let's talk then about what is going on with ADHD in a nutshell. So in you have a frontal lobe, okay? The back half of the lobe is organizing everything, inputting structures, putting them together, creating pictures. The frontal lobe extends the system over time and then engage in planning and regulation. And you have two basic modes. You have a task-focused network and a default mode network, okay? The default mode network is thinking about, think about all the shit we could be thinking about. Like, you know, I've actually had a pretty eventful day, <laughs> okay? And I've had a lot of shit going on in my head. And there's a lot of little things that are happening. Although I love talking with layman, there are a lot of things, you know, that happened and that happened. You probably should be thinking about that, okay? So my little default mode record right now is going bink, 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 all right? Now I, my structure is almost the opposite of ADHD. When I want to focus, okay, I'm able to bring a task-focused network that monkey mind that they talk about, you know, that, that, that's that default mode network, even though it's very active, I can note it and I've got a lot of practice doing it. I can note it and stay focused, okay? 
case with ADHD, all right, don't, okay? So that default mode network and is boom, oh my God, I wanna do this. And if you're, I mean, you're young, you're in a place where the task is like, the re- I don't really fucking wanna do this, okay? Uh, who wants to sit there and answer these goddamn ABC questions at a goddamn desk when it's fucking, we can go out there and play, especially if it comes with hyperactivity, you know? So there's a huge, I don't wanna do it. I get coerced into do it. I try to force myself to do it for a little while. It often means that my processing speed is low, I'm distracted. I don't perform very well in this context. I hate it. Then boom, ADHD, conduct, that opposition, the whole fucking cluster uh, will emerge. Uh, So essentially, we want to be very clear that there is almost certainly nature basically prepares us to have balances between the default mode network, the task network. It has to go between, okay, there's going to focus the task and then we're going to do in parallel. Things will vacillate back and forth and there'll be a normal distribution. You put that on a high hyperactive system, and we should be really aware that a hyperactive, meaning a high energy impulsive active system, coupled with a default mode network that's going to bounce around monkey mind, that's going to be pushing the system to do lots of variation exploration energy. We need to be aware of that. And what we should be doing is we should have classrooms that would afford this kind of diversity, um, because this is a very interesting way of being in the world. John sometimes, John Berbeke sometimes makes the case, yeah, maybe this is actually fundamentally adaptive. You could argue that actually ADHD, you know, kids would be uh, um, high status. They think about a lot of different kinds of things. They throw stuff around. The processing speed deficits that come really show up in the academic writing and things like that. In the old days, who the hell gives a shit about that? That's not something that would be status indication. So these are all sort of the, the contextual and kind of neuropsychological dynamics that are brought to bear. There's hugely a continuum of these kinds of functioning, and we are absolutely, because they frustrate us, but really because we created a mismatch, and so we then say, oh, this isn't dysfunctional, but of course the system has to be normative and appropriate, so therefore we're going to identify it inside the kid, we're going to ma- label it, we'll get some medicine on this, and then we'll, you know, and that's just, of course, uh, I believe that's just grossly um, misguided across all sorts of different layers. It's fascinating to think of the possibility that under certain technological and social conditions that things that we'd call pathologies are adaptations right maybe it's adhd uh Deleuze and guattari argued that schizophrenia at least shows some of the form of trying to deal with the type of modern civilization we've set up uh, so that's a very curious thing uh and there is a lot of um i think missing appreciation for uh deepening natural attention processes i think uh bhagwan rajneesh in the 70s uh made this joke about how a kid's looking out the window at a bird and the teacher mm-hmm. says pay attention and he was paying attention <laughs> right, <laughs> so there's, there's one is where yeah. he naturally wants to get into those right. attentional flow states but there's also this skill of we want to actually break those and teach you to deploy it on purpose yep. so that you have this additional range of capacities and there is a lot of similarity to that thinking with um, the way self-control and attention training disciplines were deployed in spiritual training schools mm. throughout history, mm-hmm. which are always sort of um, try to hold a practice, whether it's with your focus or you're just going to sit there on a rock or whatever it is, and you're going to feel waves of urgency to evade that. And yep. you're trying to undertake a personal responsibility to not succumb to those. Right. And I think now we might think of like maybe we're sending shots of dopamine and norepinephrine mm-hmm. to ourselves under those conditions and we're getting you know, a slightly higher realm of capacity from that. Mm-hmm. 
But that seems like something where you have to have an ideal that it's good for you to undergo those frustration impulse Uh of hormones. And we have to encourage each other to do that because sometimes you look at somebody who's diagnosed with ADHD, it's clear they can't do anything. Other times you think maybe nobody impressed upon this person that it's good to undergo the cognitive dissonance and unpleasant feelings that they're just refusing it and they need to take some personal responsibility in the service of an ideal to go through those inherently unpleasant experiences which elevate our capacity for self-control and attention. 100%. Yeah, I mean uh, that's exactly right. This is why if we have optimal notions about what, you know, what are the dynamic parts of the psyche and how do they interrelate and then how do we cultivate them? That'd be great. We generally don't we certainly don't integrate that systematically in the educational system, you know? Um, I was also thinking, yeah, do we do it with edu- um, uh, ADHD in terms of, we go back to, we in terms of the neurotic conditions, people, if you're sitting on a high neurotic horse, how do you relate to your feelings this way? It's the same basic issue. The process by which we help people develop the capacity to navigate aspects of their structure and relate to them both in a way that affords them the capacity, accept what it is, right? And then extend it in time, feedback and not freak out and try to control, deny, but then work with it in an adaptive process and test what actually works, understand what your goals are and what your values are, and then engage in a dynamic learning process that's it, the trial and error, and then moves you towards what kinds of goals are effective, understanding what they are in a nested structure, and then be like, yeah, I can cultivate my growth and development towards more and more optimal adaptive functioning that way. A guy named Franklin Jones, who later became controversial non-dual mystic Bubba Freejohn, finally hmm. called Adi Da. Got a very ah, really? Okay. Autobiography. <laughs> yeah, Adi Da, I know some about. <laughs> but it shows you, I don't know. Anyway, sorry. So The Knee of Listing is this book that he wrote about his life. Uh, and one thing that always caught my attention in that book is, is a period where he's having radical transformational experiences and he's trying to express them. And when he relates them to people, they become very concerned and suggest therapy or other methods of coping with these things. And what he says is that after all, he realized he must be saying it wrong because he thinks he's finally achieving the consciousness he's been striving for. Uh, and they think he's, uh, you know, undergoing the collapse of the very basic things upon which psyches depend. Yes. He wants to tell a tale of breakthrough and it sounds like a tale of breakdown. And totally. there's that conceptual pair of breakdown breakthrough. I think Stanislav Grof talks about uh, yep. spiritual emergence versus spiritual emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my own experience, I can I can say there's sometimes when you literally can't recognize the separate identities of things, yep. and it's a very dangerous situation. <laughs> and there's other times where it's evidence of the best moments that make life worth living. Great. So, you know, what do we look for in terms of these incredible state change opportunities that are available for people? How do we distinguish breakdown from breakthrough? If we have, if in both cases the normal organizing principles of the narrative self and the oppositional uh, distinction of identities is coming uh, unglued or is being moved apart from or expanded beyond or somehow isn't in full effect. Totally. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that we can, so when when the break uh, through is at least happening before we decide maybe it's a breakdown, we're shifting the grip of the basic schematic structure of how the psychic is organized in self-world relations. So you're going to expand and shift that perspective. That's the necessity, sort of gain insight, gain novel perspective, expand the issues and afford your, hmm, all right, I'm now seeing and looking at a different way of being. 
And this then creates all sorts of tensions because we build basically socially constructed delusions about how to make sense out of the world. <laughs> you know, uh, like this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And by definition, these gripping shifts are, are affording us deeply deconstructive perspectival and other kinds of notions that, nah, no, let go of that, okay? Um, so uh, one thing I talk about when I'm in my full awareness state, okay, is loving being without memory or desire. That's one way I sort of will characterize it, okay? And I, when I first told my dad that, he was like, that sounds fucking crazy. You know, he didn't use the, you know, he's like, huh, what are you talking about? How would I know? I'm a historian. How would I know? Like, I'm just insane. And if, if it doesn't really matter, how would you, everything that I care about in life is all, you know, for me is all in his self and the, what, what really means stuff. And is it really the case that George Washington was one of the great presidents or is it, you know, if, if you're in this mode or you lose all that matters in the world. Okay, and I think his anxiety speaks to absolutely this dialectical tension of love. Okay, yes, there is a necessary set of conventionalities that require some reference point. Okay, and there's a toggling back and forth between the exploration of what it is uh, that would be a particular breakthrough, almost by definition, to the extent that that extends so much that it developmentally underlines everything that's in place and does so very very quickly. So that essentially to follow it was to turn the entire system into a psychotic, loving being without memory or desire. It doesn't matter what's happening at all. <laughs> Kids, babies are going through the window. There are things burning all around us. And I'm loving being without memory or desire. You know, I was like, mm. I, so I think you got to, you know, and so for me, those are the containers that I would then bring to bear to make wisdom-based value judgments about, well, yes, I want to see individuals express, expand the domain of possibility to challenge the conventionality, to step outside of that, to convey back to what it is. But if you convey back and everyone's like, that's just an insane, well, then, yeah, there's work to be done. And there's concern that that may be um, tipping toward a breakdown. The one thing a unified field of psychology can do is to try to make that distinction uh, of when it's good or bad and how to help negotiate that. Another thing it can potentially take upon itself as a task is how do you be psychologically of help to people that are, are doing well in this sense? And I'm uh -huh. thinking of, you know, like the phrase first world problems. Uh, uh -huh. I had to wait 10 minutes for a plane that will transport <laughs> me across an entire continent in a few hours. Or God damn why, it. Why, why can't I find a place that has really good coffee and really good pistachio croissants <laughs> and baristas that don't make me feel weird or make me feel weird in the right way? So yeah. there's all these very subtle <laughs> problems, right? And sure. it's easy to make fun of that because it expresses a certain fragility and lack of perspective. But we also uh, want to encourage even good things to get better by not being satisfied with them. So we have, in, in terms of physical health, we have both paramedics who have to stop you hemorrhaging blood, and we have nutritional consultants who might try to tweak your desire <laughs> diet for totally. superior performance. These are complementary aspects of health. 100%. So suppose you're dealing with a person who's, whatever this would mean, 99% enlightened. Mm -hmm. Right, that's more than most folks, but that maybe that one percent is devastatingly vexing for them. Nobody mm. else knows how how painful, how rawly discontented mm. it is to be that aware of your incomplete merger with the divine Tao, to be that <laughs> empathically identified with the suffering of sentient beings. So, how how would the Zygonic effect right to the end of the goal, and then you fucking don't get it? That's the most frustrating place in the world. <laughs> How would we even go about beginning to think about how to be psychologically helpful to a person like that, a person whose internal suffering is real and intense, 
but whose maturity and contentment exceeds the normal range. Like, is that simply outside the realm of psychological disciplines, or is there a possible module that could begin to address that? That's a great question. Um, I certainly think it's outside the domain of, you know, conventional thinking by any stretch. I mean, you know, so there's nothing that I would know to put, put to, I mean, I can then obviously, I can always grab my talk and say, all right, here, I'll bring to bear on it. In relationship to the kinds of things that people think about, um, you know, I think you'd be like, well, wait a minute, you know, you wouldn't have very opti optimal frames to grab a hold of that kind of structure. I, I certainly think that we need to be thinking, again, deeply about what do we mean by human optima, you know, uh, optimal functioning in relation? Um, and how do we actually bring, what are the values we bring to bear? Behind me is the, you know, the classic tree of life thing, and the seventh branch is the, uh, the circle with the red line around it, okay? That's the nested model of well-being. And the red circle on the outside stands for your values and worldview. And the argument is that any judgment about health and well-being is embedded in a structure that has valuations of the good and bad. Okay, so and then and so we need to be fundamentally reflective about the valuations of good and bad in this context, and then make decisions in relationship to that uh, structure. So, and what we should always be engaged in, kind of like the issue of the sacred, you know, we should always be engaged in this sort of like, yeah, reflective exploratory process across multiple different perspectives about what the good might be from a wide variety of different domains, and then nest an integrated pluralistic vision of that through. De deliberate con you know, consultation. So you then say, yeah, the guy's suffering on the one hand, and he's very enlightened in another particular way. What are we going to contextualize that? And how do we understand that in a network of values? And that's what we're doing when we're making these judgments. All right, here's the thing that comes up a lot in spiritual discussions these days, where you run, you run into some woman or some dude, they've got bright eyes, pithy statements, the, their visceral electric field provokes you or maybe your mirror neurons into a powerful altered state, a deep sense of conviction that this person really is higher than you in the co-evolving hierarchy of knowing and being. So it's, it's experientially undeniable. It's not making you deranged. You're not so naive that you're just going to fall into cult dynamics. So you start to love this person and take their advice and being around them is part of your core developmental practice. Uh -huh. what in Sanskrit they call satsang. Uh -huh. Now, nice. then later you find out she's a coke addict or he won't say no to sexual transference from bosomy <laughs> students or their dietary advice is so far off the mark from what we understand about health that it's egregious. And so there's this odd but repeating situation here. And Wilbrights would say, well, their spiritual line is very advanced, but maybe their interpersonal and moral lines are not. And what, what do you expect? You don't think a star mm -hmm. basketball player is going to be an Einstein in physics, you fool. Stop conflating all the possible skill domains. Uh -huh. uh, that's a very handy, uh, yep. but is it is it a satisfying solution? Like, what's there's a number of different ways to approach this problem of people who have very uh, strong capacities or strong state experiences in one area, and some hidden or underlying problem in another area, or just a relative lack of development, and that might get covered or hidden by the halo effect or the legitimate sophistication of their overall degree of integration. So. How do we sort of approach that? There's so many different angles to it. Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, um, to me that basically you can do, a, there is a generalized optimal functioning. In fact, the nested, well, is sort of like, okay, these are the elements that go into it. We kind of think about that and overall, but that's a, a gross 
picture. And when, you know, I was just talking to somebody about, well, what is intelligence? Well, in some ways, intelligence, you can do the G thing, and it's uh, the speed of ra rapid novel adaptive problem solving in a context, and, and then the generalizability of that. That's a G. And then underneath that, there are all of these different modules okay, of processing uh, that are pretty narrow, but actually to function in certain contexts, if you don't have them, then you have all sorts of problems. And well, is that how does that relate to intelligence? My point is, is that, yeah, there's going to be a general interlocking network dynamic, and then there's a differentiating aspect dynamic. Okay. So what I'm hearing, and I think that's going to be pretty consistent in a wide variety of domains. And I do like the Wilberian frame here. I think Wilbur's uh, many different lines of development. I don't think he's, I would want him to be more precise. And when we sync up Utah with Integral, we can then say, well, actually, Utah nails a couple of key elements and, he, and Wilbur throws words across into the world that's like, mm, that's not very precise. Okay. But the summary of the different kinds of developmental lines and the idea that we have absolutely different kinds of capacities to achieve in particular contexts, and then deep limitations in other domains is certainly, well, it's empirically obviously the case. It's something that we would definitely expect. Um, and really, we wouldn't want to think about, oh, well, this person's just, their mental health is on a single continuum of a particular kind of thing that you can then identify as 89.5 <laughs> relative to 89.7 on the absolute scale. And there's like, that is not the kind of construct that we're talking about here. Uh, this is a differentiated multifaceted construct that's gonna have a whole profile across a wide variety of different lines to use the uh, Wilberian frame. And I think that that's, that is a reasonable description. That's what actually happens. And that's the nature of this kind of mapping of this kind of construct. I wonder, you know, the sort of uh, the diluting effects that come from the notion of a single linear scale of, of overall development, whether that's a normal human thinking problem, like we all think that way until we learn to be a little bit more complex, or whether it in some sense derives from the type of uh, modern social economic system we have set up, because you're like, ah, because I was thinking 89 and a half, like, he, he's it's, it's that's a low A in consciousness, but it's still an A. Where you like because we around up whole lives with these scales. Totally, hundred uh, percent. So is it normal for humans to think this way, or is it a, an artifact no, of the no, that's environment? Yeah, no, it's definitely. I would say. Well, I would be very surprised if oral indigenous cultures framed anything along these lines. These are. Uh, I would think that these are psychotechnologies, as John the term that emerge in. Uh, civilizations that require massive, more and more levels of abstraction and training to achieve abstraction, and then operating the worlds across abstractions, and then implying these abstractions in, in reified ways um, that often are useful on the one hand, but often are grossly mistaken because they overly reify them on another. Um, and we wander around with the, this way of sense making and condensing and consolidating the world as if we know, I mean, I know what G is because I studied what a construct is and how constructs actually work. You know, my dad and God love him, but it was like, oh, I can just see that. I know what it is. It's an absolute thing. I was like, no, you reified the shit out of that thing and you consolidated a whole bunch of stuff that really shouldn't have been consolidated into one thing. And you go around and you have a little heuristic that you make notions about. Um, but so that's the thing to me to be, uh, we need to be conscious of. And absolutely, the abstractions of our thought processes in modern first traditional and then into science and the way we apply mathematics and the way we train everybody, unbelievably useful skill. Uh, but it's always that left hemisphere grabbing a hold of a concept and saying, oh, I'm going to categorize everything based on that concept to lose all differentiation. And basically now the concept is if it's real. And, and that's a, 
that's something we should be conscious of and a modern society, I think, uh, prevents us or blinds us to that reality. I, I just thought of a thing to ask, but I do, I think of a topic and then I like, before I say it, I, I tip and I like, I back up into like a, an introductory framing segue. So, so here's my introductory framing segue. <laughs> I love that embodiment, but if I, John would be happy that you're actually look over my body and I drop. Right. Over here, but over here. And you know, I shift my perspective, back my body up. That's great. Four cognition right there, Layman. Um, I normally distinguish mysticism from spirituality in mm -hmm. terms of talking about states. And I would tend to define spirituality, as I've said, uh, as integration of uh, experience between and among and the general integration of different kinds of states of consciousness, whereby mysticism seems like an intense experiential focus on a single state. Right. So there's a kind of monomania or monological lens on reality where the mystic wants to completely go into the formless or completely go into the dream realm. Or I would argue completely go into the material that these are um, very absolute, very concentrated domains of experience. And then when you try to communicate from within one of those domains to someone in another one, there's mystification. They don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I <laughs> could get right. Uh, so when signals are being exchanged between these mystical concentrations centered on different ranges of ontological experience, then there's an intelligibility problem. Uh -huh. But this gets very tricky when the area of concentration is that of ultimate values. Uh -huh. I mean, if I start telling you that, look, of course, spiritual bypassing is an important consideration. And of course, people should look into therapy. But ultimately, don't you ultimately have to say that the absolute is the absolute and that supreme thing gives meaning to all others mm. and only that one thing should be the ultimate focus of your concentration. Mm. So, you know, the luminous saint is chanting mm -hmm. Ram, Ram, Ram. Mm -hmm. Where is this superior adaptation? Where is this an obsessional condition of monomania? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a... Uh, that's a that's a deep and wonderful question. Uh, and certainly I answer is that if, if that's all that it is and becomes a devoted in a particular way, that's not the dialectical toggling. But do I feel um, I have my grounds for that and my, my moral ethical philosophy, my red you know, circle on the nest of this? this, this um, I'm not a um, moral, what I call a moral absolutist. So a moral absolutist is an individual that believes um, true value, absolute good in like Star Wars is a moral absolutist story uh, where you actually know what the dark and the light forces are. You discover them, they exist completely independent of you, they fight in the cosmos and you have a choice and then you can, which one are you gonna cultivate? And that exists in a moral value framework and fabric of the universe independently of anybody's judgment. So for me, I'm a universalist. I do believe that humans have built through the process of self-reflective justification an analysis of say good and bad that actually has an enormous amount of generalizability for a lot of good reasons. And you get this integrated pluralism whereby there are enormous number of centerpieces, okay, uh, that tie together a, you know, a vortex of attractor, what I call the elephant sun god to be oriented in relation. Um, but I also, it's the elephant is the lots of different aspectualized ways to see that from a pluralistic perspective. And I certainly don't think that there's just one absolute orientation. Now, people that say that is all part of a pluralism. I would argue that we get together and inevitably create a, a value structure that's really structured as a coherent, integrated pluralism. Meaning, yes, we know what we're talking about. Yes, we can pull together lots of different things and find a circle. And at the same time, there'll be a pluralist 
view of from sages from a wide variety of different perspectives of what might lead to the path of that. Um, that's what I see. That's what the kind of structure that I would envision. And that so then we would look out and we see wow, lots of different sages. Okay. And then we'd find if that guy is the, you know, and for him, being awareness itself, loving being without memory or desire is the way this bead of consciousness needs to live in the world. Uh, I would certainly not necessarily say, look at, you know, what are the other consequences? Maybe that'd be great. I mean, he's just an enlightened spiritual being. And at that level, that's great. But I, I don't see any value structure that says, well, Greg, you know, what my soul is pursue, you know, become obsessed with the problem of psychology and pursue you talk, you know, uh, and it has, and that, that is what my soul got, you know, passionate around and, and sucked into. And then this is the production of that. Um, and, and this is my little path and the garden sits underneath the elephant sun God in relationship to that. Uh, so for at least me, my structure around this kind of issue is to, you know, frame it as a coherent integrated pluralism, expect to see that be certainly wary of somebody that says, I'm the sage of all sages. Okay. I am the, I've reached the elephant sun God. I'm looking down at all of you. There is just one way I found it. Sorry, everybody. And I know that uh, when you're competing amongst the sages and you're justifying why you're above all the other sages, my guess is you regress back into the egoic adult land and are bullshitting yourself in a particular way. That at least is my sense, but there's my value system in relation. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I can think of some ways in which there's a, a position that you can take where from that position, no matter who takes that position, you are the superior and ultimate only <laughs> always radical source of everything that is, as anybody else occupying that position would also say <laughs> that they are the only one. And so there's a there's a there's an implied peer group there in a certain perverse way. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it would be nicer if we had the uh, languaging that allowed us to get past that. And I think that the, um, you know, when somebody is talking about being the only one or being focused on the one, whatever that one mm -hmm. is, you don't always know whether that's a one perceived exclusively apart from a multitude or whether it's one as a sort of signifier of a one many. Yes. Yeah, right. And if we're thinking of a one many, then we're thinking of the thing that is the basis of integrative health and development in general. So that would totally. be right? so, get a very nice and very not nice version of the same thing in the same wording. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think finding the language for that is key. And certainly I think that our metamodern predicament and hope perhaps is part of the, if we realize the hope, finding the language will be part of that. Um, I, one of the things that called me to build the garden, and indeed I then built the whole, this thing called the I-quad path that leads to the fucking coin, is exactly this, yeah, there you are, brother. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's the exact... Um, placement it's it's literally trying to get cosmic coordinates of saying hey folks i figured out this space that i am inside of it okay and yes when in my little garden i'm the little buddha that sits underneath the tree and at the same time this is one little space in relationship to the cosmos of different paths so let me share with you the space i found i think i solved a couple of key maybe more generalizable problems but really generalizable like because of american psycho uh, psychology empiricism fucked up so that's what I end up solving, which is not the cosmos. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm situated in a set and it affords a really nice view, but it's contextualized, it's local, it's around a set of justificatory problems. I, it's hard for me to see as somebody gets out of that and becomes God without being delusional. So I'm situating myself in a particular place. I feel like I can see the Omega point in a particular way from this. I can imagine many different sages that would see it in a particular way. 
And to me, this sort of like, hey, let's share our, let's create this integrated pluralistic space. It seems to be sort of the nature of the space out here. If we go back to the early sort of what is higher pathology or higher whatever, um, the nature of that space seems to be, to me at least, th that captures kind of the geometrics of it. Yeah, this is where I'm at too, because I know there's some people could make an argument that you are inadequately faithful to the elephant sun god insofar as you admit that there's anything non-absolute about it. But my sense is that you are enacting uh, appropriate devotional <laughs> fidelity uh, by having at least the minimal framing of the relativity of your own context, that that is a higher version of fidelity to the omega point. That's, I mean, that's how I find at least the coherent integrated pluralism. That's at least where I am. Maybe, maybe I'll call you if I hang out with the Elvis Sun guys. Oh, that old Greg, see, he was pathological, and now I've reached absolute optimality, and I'm hanging out actually on the sun. If that happens, you know, my my current state would be like run away, layman. By the time that happens, <laughs> so, one translation of one of Heraclitus's fragments says, uh, "When you are listening to the one, or when you are listening to the spirit, it is wise to agree with all things are one." And I was thinking, you know, it's like when you're talking to the mafia don, it is wise to say to him that his daughter is the fairest in the land. Like, of course, that's what he wants to hear. <laughs> you're in the you're in the mafia's garden there, and then you can be on that. But just recognize where your location is in relationship to the magnitude of possible space. <laughs> right, I, I'm going to try another angle on um, problematizing where we set normal. Okay. And uh, let's talk about flow states. Flow states are great. Right in the last few decades, obviously, people like Csikszentmihalyi have picked up on what Maslow and before him Nietzsche were saying about yeah. uh, dynamic, optimal, embodied psychology sure. and proximal learning, meaningfulness, enhanced empowerment experience. These are great. Flow states are also, in some ways, deeply relational because they involve interactive adjustment to persons or environments or concept sets. That's that's all great. Now, imagine a guy sits down in meditation. He finds if he does nothing, his attention will move automatically towards some stress or unresolved situation, past, present, or future. Um, and these situations are problematic when he analyzes them in the so far as they are not flow states. You know, mm. that, I, did, I, I, I didn't flow properly in that. Why did I screw that up? Why am I going to screw that up? Why don't I feel okay about money or sex or the basic fact of being in the world? They all seem like they're lacking the uh, experience that you're looking for in a flow state. So then this meditator would, you know, look into that. And if he finds how he might actually enter into a flow state in each of those contexts, then that context releases. And then his attention will, of course, go to the next problem. And if he can release a whole bunch of these, he might access some expanded realm of consciousness. I'm asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got a friend with flow problems. Yeah, well. <laughs> Don't. The, the question here is, and this would be setting a high bar, but would it be feasible to diagnose the absence of flow itself as a pathology, right? Because some of the great sages seem to have done this, and it's a pretty radical critique of mind and society. Uh, but at the same time, if we wanted to really privilege optimal learning, optimal feeling, optimal doing, maybe we would try some kind of phrasing like that. Yeah, I think that this is, that's a great reflective question my um well i certainly would be very happy to say that if you have virtually never very minimal uh you know experiences in flow states at all um then you're that's a good indication that the system is non-optimal you know definitely um 
So it's the app, the absence of optimal states. And again, we, you know, flow is a is a really cool concept. It speaks a lot to things. Or do I want to be in flow all the time? Is that all good? You know, mm, not necessarily. Um, but there definitely that is a good indication of coherent uh, integrative functioning in relationship to the gripping of the agent arena relationship, um, and this indication of all sorts of different positive aspects. The absence of that, it'd be kind of like somebody says, "Hey, I've never had sex." Okay, uh, and you know, okay, well, you could then say, "Well, are you you're asexual?" That's possible. Uh, and then you could wonder about you have a particular constitution and the system isn't desiring it because some biogenetic kind of structure that's underdeveloped, you know, do we call that pathological? Mm. I think that's a great question. And I think our values and then what do we mean at some level, it's an underdeveloped aspect of experience that I would consider to be valued. Uh, and therefore, yes, <laughs> um, I think the same basic place we make with other kinds of flow, <laughs> the psychological flow. Um, but the line drawing and the framing in relationship to these issues is both complicated, nuanced, and context-dependent. Uh, and then you really have to, yeah, I think you'd have to get into the weeds about that uh, and really, you know, to create a differentiated story and clarity about what your background values are and what you're bringing to bear in relationship to those differentiations. <laughs> I tip my head this way. <laughs> um, there's a number of psychological disorders associated with expansiveness, right? We might undergo an unstable psychic inflation, but sure. we're, we're, we think we're an invincible God or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But we might also just uh, mansplain or emotionally rant in ways that take up other people's normal space. Of course. Uh -huh. um, and yet we really do wish to be... Um, merged with an apex omnipresent super identity that requires us to feel beyond our apparent limits, especially if that's the spontaneous unforced result of understanding our contractive movement. Uh -huh. And so I'm curious about that, the relationship between recoil and outreach, like uh -huh. is it, or when is it healthy to feel expanded beyond the normal human behavioral conventions and the ordinary tendency to retract? Uh -huh. On the one hand, like obviously some kind of pulsatory movement of expansion and contraction is necessary. Uh -huh. uh, obviously, we can be overexpanded. At the same time, we do a lot of things to contract that we might not need to do. And just feeling that we are ourselves could be one of those things. Uh -huh. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I um, to me, we're, you know, what, 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 comes to bear in relationship to that is that when we talk about the expansion, okay, um, we're talking about a fundamental perspectival shift. At least that's the goal. So the healthy expansion is to be able to incorporate the expanded interests of the system. So you're basically, you're zooming out and you're able to hold in one, the inner play. So you, you get abstracts like, so now it's, oh, it's the whole system in a particular place that I'm now able to fundamentally identify with. I may be then anchored into my egoic node, but if I can connect to the interest values, inner dynamics, and identify with that, have a felt sense of that, and embody that in, in, in both my fundamental experience and in what it is that I do, then I would say that that kind of expansion, and we can just think about that in relationship to, well, how is that interfacing with the values of the entire system? Well, to the extent that that's in tune with all those intervertebrate values and then emanating in a particular way that's resonant with them, then you're going to create more and more coherent integrative value within that. 
However, if the expansion really is, I'm expanding my power, I'm expanding my influence, I'm expanding my sense of you know, grandiosity, um, and you get sort of things like mania and narcissism, right? What actually is happening in those is, is an elevation of the egoic structure in a way that's diminishing and devaluing and altering the particular values of others, and you get a forced contraction uh, in those, at least potentially, and then those things are going to react, and now you get a, a vicious cycle of... Uh, so the question is, is the expansion in coherent harmony with the rest of the system, or is the expansion fundamentally at the expense of the other aspects? Those would be the ways in which you'd kind of wonder about, well, whether it's more optimal or fundamentally less optimal and really egoic. Did everybody follow that? <laughs> Sorry. <if> I... <laughs> that... <laughs> I, I loved it, but I can imagine people, <laughs> we're, we're dancing in very strange territory. Right, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of, you know, I bring Gurdjieff up a lot. I love this guy. And I think he's yeah. under assimilated into a lot of the contemporary developmental dialogues right? because he's, it's hard to get to the core of what he's saying. And he's mm. deliberately made it that way. But mm -hmm. One of the things he's famous for is, you know, with his normal hyperbolic phrasing, is saying that most human beings are not really a human being. So you're just a man in quotation marks. You uh -huh. think you're self-conscious, but you're not. Mostly, uh -huh. if you examine yourself, most of the time you don't have the capacities that we attribute to a normal human being. Uh -huh. And a lot of that is because you are not uh, able to simultaneously track and correlate the basic human functions of thought uh -huh. and motion and, and somatic operations. Uh -huh. And that if you were able to do that, then you would be showing up in the world as a real human being. You would be really learning the uh -huh. things that you've apparently learned. Uh -huh. You'd be a real participate in the modern world and we can start to build a modern civilization. But insofar as you are just switching between these, uh -huh. you're not even at the basic level of what we would call a person. Uh -huh. It's no surprise we get the civilization results we get because we're uh -huh. treating people like persons and uh -huh. they haven't really stabilized in personhood yet. Uh -huh. What do you make of a take like that? Um, yeah, so to me, the, the what's going on there is the reference point that I'd be hesitant to use. So I feel like he would be uh, uh, lensing a sage orientation as the expectation and then showing the conventional adult failing to reach the sage like and then judging them as a, a sub person i would want to move that back and basically be like and I, i'd be really interesting to be in different contexts and wide variety of different ways but i think most conventional people you know operate in a particular way people there are people that enlighten so that they would be like you know sort of well enlightened persons okay so for me and and this is actually an important point theoretically, because I want to try to develop very clearly, what do I mean by the ontology of a person? I want to understand what the ontology of mental is and what's the ontology of a human person. Um, a number of thinkers, at least in the academic world, basically have come, come to a sort of behavioral description of a person as a self-justified being that reflects on its actions and takes accountability for what, it's, what, what it does, okay? And interestingly, now that's a capacity. Uh, the only empirical entities we know that are human are persons are human beings, but like Jabba the Hutt in this case, you know, it, that's a person and imagine, of course, science fiction. But no, what is Jabba the Hutt doing? Hey, I grab Leia because of this. And, you know, I like Han Solo be frozen because of that. And I'm doing this because I'm king. Okay. 
You know, it's a justified state of being. So at a behavioral personhood level, I would basically say the capacity to be a person, and by the way, a in this way, a one-year-old is not a person, okay? A six-year-old is right when you start to become in sort of, and you see it in societies, they'll give person-like responsibilities emerging six and seven, and then in adolescence, and then boom, you become, and then you hold that across time. So I would say at that level, yeah, people are persons. That's the, you know, most people are justifying their actions. Now, at what level of optimal functioning, okay, are you just a justifier? And then, uh, you know, the nice thing about justification is it splits the whole continuum of reason giving. You get rationalization defenses on the one hand, and real epistemological articulations like E equals MC squared can be thought of as a justification in a way, okay? But I want to look at a structure of justification and be like, hey, we, I would say societally, we swim in a sea of bullshit, okay? We are, we're socialized in a way that's actually pretty alienating from our bodies, from our experiential selves, our egos, persona. We don't know how to create coherent integration. And you're seeing a lot of anxiety and depression, you know, rampant meaninglessness, okay? So we certainly are looking at the idea that many, many, far too many adults relative to what our potential knowledge is, our biological and physical control of the environment, far too many adults are stuck in, what is it, infantilized, neurotic, confused, reactive, defensive place. Uh, and, you know, it shows in their heart. That's why they're kind of miserable. Um, so I wouldn't think about this in terms of, oh, they're not persons. They're persons. They're justifying what they're doing. But there are definitely a lot, way too many people that are too far away uh, from sort of what I would think about as more of standard operating integrated person way of being in the world. Uh, and so in that regard, that's why kind of the whole, hey, wake up to the meaning of mental health crisis. There's a lot of, uh, you know, chaotic fragmented pluralism inside of us we're drowning in bullshit we could be so much more connected and feeling and be in aligned with our thoughts our feelings uh, our systems of justification our capacity of reflection um and that would be we'd be more whole that way absolutely so just to put a really sharp point on that would you say that the majority of human beings in like your casual overview estimation are or are not uh, achieving the level you would think of as normal, appropriate human health and well-being? Um, I, I think that the, the number, okay, so if, yeah, so in this continuum is sort of like definitely people are in the healthy neurotic. Most people are healthy neurotic and far too many people drop under stress into neurotic and, and, and into borderline relative to what would be uh, ideal. So the, the numbers of, in, if we were in a particular um, a healthier environment, the normative would be healthy resilient. But now the normative's healthy neurotic with a lot of vulnerability into neurotic. And that seems to be getting worse. So that's what I would say in relation. We could, we could do a hell of a lot better to have 80% of the people in healthy resilient. Right now we have 10, 15% in healthy resilient, the vast majority of people in healthy neurotic. Um, and and that a lot of stressors, and it seems to be more and more like just pure neurotic. And that's so uh, that's sad to me. If only if only we could get ordinary up to normal. We'd be <laughs> there. <you go>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to come back to, you know, the possibilities of the far side of the justification system. But one thing that just bubbled up for me is this idea about uh, failure modes of basic functions in terms. Right. So if a knife is good because it is sharp. <laughs> then when is a feeling a good feeling and when is a perception a good perception mm -hmm. um you know from the point of view of a meta psychology when should i diagnose my own basic relationships to the world in terms of things like feeling and perception as being 
adequate or substandard? Sure. Well, this is uh, this is something that I. So let's start with the feeling and we're just in the emotions. Okay, emotions energize motion toward a particular thing. You have a whole. Uh, you have a base sort of color palette of emotion, like sadness, madness, gladness. Okay, and then through development, you put all those colors together and you start to. You know, I'm really humbled by this or, or whatnot if, if you have access to a lot of emotion. But what fundamentally I would basically say is that emotions uh, um, are triggered in response to shifts in perceptions and motives, okay, that then per the perceptual response set that says, hey, here's an indication that something just happened that orients you in a particular way, okay? Um, the optimal emotional functioning is to be richly aware and attuned to the messages, the signals, the indications that these energized motivational signals are saying, okay? So we wanna be able to say, oh God, I was nervous about this because of this and because of my history, this pulled in a particular way. I'm aware and I'm thankful that it told me because I experienced this as a particular threat, okay? So awareness and attunement on the one hand. On the other hand, because we're human persons, not just primates, Acting on our emotions, because they're pretty impulsive, they orient you to energize motion generally in the short term, you then have to hold and adaptively regulate those emotions and think about what your short-term and long-term goals are relative to the multiplicity of us as complex beings across time, okay? So healthy emotion for me is this capacity to be aware and attuned on the one hand and adaptively regulate on the other. What that does is it enables you to pull the body and the animal, I mean, the primate parts together to be attuned to those kinds of things, to listen to the voices, to make, I hear you, I understand this, and given the complexity of the situation, this is how we're going to kind of compromise that in the short and long term, okay? So the goal, what am I saying? In optimal emotional functioning, I often call this the emotional sweet spot, is able to hold emotion in that way, you know? Perceptions are very similar. Okay, so perceptions are basically like, all right, if we're doing reality-based perceptions, I want to be able to basically create an optimal recursive modeling grip on an interacting with my perceptions. I want to be able to decipher what it would be from a multiplicity of different perspectives, understand what I want to afford with it, and then transactively interacting uh, to achieve that affordance and to be flexible enough so that if I couldn't relate to it in a particular way, I would then be able to try to upgrade and be aware of surprise and possible shifts so that I could obtain a more optimal grip. Other people perceptually basically like, and John talks about this as reciprocal narrowing, I'm gonna see what it is, I'm gonna jump on a hypothesis, a cognitive error from my mentor Beck's perspective, and then operate off of that defensively without ever actually being flexibly empirically oriented to whether or not my perceptions match correspond to grip uh, the reality in, a, uh, in an effective way. Do you think people who are not uh, optimally gripping the world in their emotions or their perceptions can end up in a state of, you know, deprivation or starvation, you know, contributing to a variety of psychological maladies because they're insufficiently being nourished in that sense? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're, uh, I think like social media. So for me, this primate heart needs to be known and valued. Okay. And, and, you, and it's not dissimilar uh, to your stomach. So how many good social known and valued calories do you have? Uh, and to the extent that you don't have that, you'll experience then a relational value famine. If you have an emptiness, hole in the heart, you know, there, there's not. 
and, and people don't have a framework that they'll defend against. I don't need other people or whatever. Um, but absolutely, this system, I mean, it can, unlike, obviously, you can't sort of def- deny food if you try to, like, oh, okay, I'm not hungry. Your system's like, no, you actually fucking need to eat. You can deny your attachment needs, but that's going to create all sorts of psychic conflict in relationship to this. So I certainly believe that people are socially, relationally, and emotionally malnourished in many ways. And, and so uh, because they can't, they don't know how to coherently integrate their emotional system, their attachment system, and their identity in the world uh, and feel that felt sense of being. And that's a problem, you know, definitely a problem. And I think our socialization, um, you know, makes it real difficult for many, many people uh, to do that. And that's part of the sadness of the situation. All right, let's talk a little bit about what I termed the end zone or like the, <laughs> the far shore of the justification system. Now we're, uh, we're, at least one of the animals that seem to be physiologically aware and able to use tools. Maybe there's a dozen or so that we know about, but we go farther than that. We become symbolically cognizant of representing ourselves to ourselves and entering autobiographically and justificatorily into these uh, new set of relationships that you've mentioned. Um, what would it be like to free ourselves from that? And, and more than just the you know, being able to separate your storytelling from your feelings and your event. That's a very important skill that comes with practice and we should be trained to do that early on, I think. But there are some individuals and some states that seem to undermine the very premise of the justification system. And the, the, the symbol within the justification system of that is very often paradox. Yes. Uh, whether it's Zen or the, the most ecstatic writings of Kierkegaard or the Sufis or certain psychedelic intensities, uh, there's this idea that you can and should, if you can, enter into this set of possibilities of consciousness that are forced forth by paradox and seemingly dispense with the basic requirements of the justification system. So, Totally. I love that. When we, you know, what is it like, what is it about the justification system that's being left behind? Whether we yep. call that a pathology from a higher viewpoint or yep. not, mm-hmm. what is it that is, is the limit there that these people are trying to get beyond, assuming they're doing it in a healthy way? Totally. Uh, I got to go here in about 10 minutes, but let's uh, yeah, no just have, um, so this, uh, so I, this is super, I love this question. Maybe we would have a whole uh, series on this. And, and indeed, you were, when we were talking, I don't know, in the, I think it was the elusive eye follow up the, the trans just, I was just I really hadn't used the term that much but you were talking about trans justificatory um it made my heart sing because I was exactly a, a framing that I hadn't necessarily put to it and as soon as I heard it, I was like yes okay so the nice thing about justification systems theory especially placed in the tree of knowledge is that it allows us to nail something that we've many of times lived through and now get adjacent to and see so what is this well oh we get socialized into the belief value structures about the way the world is and ought to be. And that becomes our culture, which is very much, many people use this, it's the water to fish. We live in a culture and those propositional networks are just seen as basically just reflecting reality as it is, okay? Uh, in a very, and yet, of course, it's a postmodern incident. It's like, and yet actually they are constructed. And maybe many of them, essentially, they're useful, but they're useful delusions, okay? And indeed, if you think about what Socrates did, with, I would argue that Socrates sort of built formal epistemology through the Socratic questioning. And really, when he says, I'm, you know, people say you're the wisest man because I know nothing, what he's basically saying is, holy fuck, all we do is build these bullshit justifications, okay? Um, 
And that's one of the things I wish we would wake up to at one level, okay? Uh, it kind of gets back to this whole issue of toggling between awareness and this ESP self, to be able to step outside and just be in the world and realize that all of this constructed system of meaning-making and justification, my friend Rob Scott talks a lot about this myth, fundamental shift where he wants people to get outside their attachment to meaning, their insistence on meaning, and framing the world the way their self-ego persona needs to frame it. I think that huge loosening of that assuredness of meaning is absolutely key. And one of the things that we, I believe we need to do from a metamodern perspective is to see, yes, just like myself and my persona, my justification egoic narrative is useful, okay? But it's a particular pipe set of propositions that frame a particular thing in a particular way. And there are almost an infinite number of framings. And when you start to see the infinite number of framings, you can get adjacent to it in a particular way that's like, oh, okay, I can just watch what I'm doing. I know I the just when you're in it, the justification is truth. It's it's value. It's all that matters. You get adjacent to it. You watch just the process. You're like, huh? You're a justifier. I'm a justifier. <laughs> you know, we can justify together. Okay, but ultimately, when you place yourself in that, then you ask the question: Well, what is real? Like the Tao. The Tao is not the Tao. The Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. Basically, what that's getting at is that, the, at least as I certainly interpret it, as we build systems of justification, remember that that's what they are in relationship to reality. They aren't reality. That's reification to confuse the system of justification for reality. And the proper relationship to what these are, what functions they serve, how to flexibly relate to them without abolishing because they serve crucial functions, but also to be able to get adjacent to mine, you get adjacent to yours, and us to talk through them and then understand in relationship to them, well, I think that's the path to a trans-justificatory way of being. And I think if you think about what would be healthy for global structure, okay, I mean, just think about our political system. Get the fuck out of the libs versus the Trumpers. I mean, just step adjacent and just watch the system from the sidelines. And isn't it interesting? I'm right, you're an idiot. I'm right, you're an idiot. It's like, okay, you guys are puppets to systems of justification. And really, you know, you're already basically constrained and pre-framed by some system that's fighting against some system that now you're just a puppet and a pawn into. Let's just watch those things, step aside, and realize that we're much more than they, than justifications. I think Ian McGilchrist, in relationship to his critiques these days, and certainly John and his four Ps, they're all saying modernity and its ever desire to abstract and the power of the scientific method, it's confused reality for its systems of justification. So I think if we get a good handle on this, get adjacent to them, see their functionality um, and, and use them pragmatically uh, and then see them in relation from an adjacent perspective, that to me, that's really exciting about a direction forward um, that I don't think really happened in modernity. So you get the modernity and you get the postmodern is like, oh, you're in it. A metamodern transition is like, of course we justify. Let's wonder about that. And that would be an interesting place for us to move toward. Yeah, maybe this is a subject for a whole discussion of its own because I think, you know, it's fascinating to bring modernity up there. Post-modernity technically does that, but it doesn't acknowledge that it's doing that. So meta-modernity does that acknowledgement. And it's very structurally similar to mindfulness and witnessing kinds of meditation practices, which are structurally similar to a move you seem to make when you're doing developmental complexity in yourself. And then that's one whole set of adjacencies where you're moving a little bit back from complete identification and the complete identification premise the performance of complete identification 
seems to be one of those features of the justification landscape. And very similar to that is the idea that there's fundamental differences between opposites. That seems to be shared across justification systems. And everybody who's working with paradox is actually bringing uh, what seems to be fundamental oppositions into much more intense adjacency to the point where you almost can't tell them apart, and then you're forced into another position. Yes, and, and we, that's we could get all into that. I yeah, also want uh, to hey man, around evil. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to bring evil up, but uh, I know we've got time constraint. I know you've got other things on your mind. We should maybe take a couple of minutes here to look back. And I, I'm curious what you think um, all the answers you've given me have in common. What is it that Greg's been saying today that we, <laughs> <laughs> that we could put together and go, oh, this is uh, sort of a you talk approach to higher pathology. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, I think a lot of what, um, first off, it's just been being with you, layman. So there it is. That's value right in and of itself. That's my red. That's my red circle out there. Is the, the layman living experience. So I'm, I'm glorious. So, um, so a general you talk. Oh, there's an animal level. There's a child level. There's an adult level. There's a sage level. Okay. The animal level is embedded in an emotional, socio-emotional, relational domain, and you can divide that up into sort of okay, get its basic needs met: pleasure, pain, safety, things like that. Then there's the social relational needs. And there, how well and coherent integrated is that? But then this whole person thing comes along where it has to interpret. Start and, and so children get socialized into the system of having to learn to be a person. We then think about what is the relationship between that socialized system of justification and that primate and animal structure, both inside the individual in terms of its vertical stack, horizontally, and then across development. A coherent, flexible flow among those layers is generally more optimal than a broken, static, conflict-ridden system across the layers. How do we create an understanding of that to maximize the former rather than the latter, and or are we not creating societies that tend to maximize the latter, i.e. chaotic, fragmented pluralism uh, inside the self as a reflection of society? That's my critique against what the meaning of mental health crisis is. But, and then the whole issue is, well, then can you transcend that? You have this conventional structure, and then can you transcend it? Certainly some people do, and then that creates this very interesting space of op identifying optimal potentiality, but also deviating from what the equilibrium is. And then you have this chaos order, edge of growth, and then into chaos kind of dynamic. And we have to kind of be able to frame that and sort out what are the principles of transformation in this higher order towards a sage that is really authentically sage-like or spiritual bypassing that basically is disastrous. It's an egoic defense mechanism that if it was actually followed in the whole, because it's got really just an egoic ma magnifying rather than a trans-egoic genuineness, the whole system would break down if you actually followed that. So that to me is a basic architecture. And then we sort of get to this whole point about, well, what is this developmental line? And the nice thing about the you talk is with the idea of justification with what turns a animal into a child and a child into adult is justification. And then what turns an adult into a sage? Well, maybe a trans justificatory adjacency that gets back into an integrated stack that isn't necessarily, you know, trying to propositionally legitimize shit, but is engaged in a perspectival participatory, you know, one many wholeness. I'm sold. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great being with you, Greg. And I hope, I mean, I, I take on the role of the questioner because I'm habituated to it now, but I hope I've 
uh, packed enough positive contribution into the form of my questions and into my discursive segues to be a full participant here. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, just happy to be with you. Maybe in the new year, we'll do a whole part three on trans-justificatory approaches. I think that's a, I really, like I said, it warmed my heart when I saw that. I've been thinking a lot about it since. I really welcome that. And I always love when we end with the idea we can jump into another thing a month from now. <laughs> yeah, me too. This is great, man. Love you. All right, man. Take care. It's great.